In the autumn of 1441, in the city of Cremona, a great wedding was taking place between two powerful families, the Visconti and the Zvozza. The bride, 16-year-old Bianca Maria Visconti, was the daughter of the Duke of Milan, and the groom, 40-year-old Francesco Sforza, was a brave warrior and trusted advisor to the Duke. As the wedding feast was being prepared, disaster struck. A great drought had struck the land, and the city of Cremona was left without the necessary ingredients to create a grand dessert for the occasion. The cooks and chefs frantically searched for a solution, but to no avail. Desperate, one of the chefs had a brilliant idea. He decided to take what little sugar and almonds they had left and mix them together with some honey. He cooked the mixture until it became a soft, chewy confection that could be cut into small pieces. He then shaped the nougat, or torone, into the form of the city's famous Torazzo bell tower. When the wedding guests were served the nougat, they were amazed at the sweet, nutty flavour and chewy texture of the new dessert. They exclaimed that it was the most delicious treat that they had ever tasted, and they begged the chef to reveal the secret of its creation. From that day on, the recipe for the nougat was passed down from generation to generation, becoming a beloved part of Italian culinary tradition. The nougat was said to have been a symbol of the ingenuity and creativity of Italian chefs who could turn even the most meagre ingredients into something truly magical. This is the legend of Cremona's nougat, and to this day you can buy nougat shaped as the Terrazzo Tower. Welcome to The Violin Chronicles, a podcast in which I, Linda Lespe, will attempt to bring to life the story surrounding famous, infamous, or just not very well known, but interesting, violin makers of history. I'm a violin maker and restorer. I graduated from the French Violin Making School some years ago now, and I currently live and work in Sydney with my husband, Antoine, who is also a violin maker and graduate of the French school, L'École Nationale de Lutterie in Mircourt. As well as being a luthier, I've always been intrigued with the history of instruments I work with, and in particular, the lives of those who made them. So often, when we look back at history, I know that I have a tendency to look at just one aspect, but here my aim is to join up the puzzle pieces and have a look at an altogether fascinating picture. So join me as I wade through tales not only of fame, famine and war, but also of love, artistic genius, revolutionary craftsmanship, determination, cunning and bravery that all have their part to play in the history of the violin. Welcome back to the story of the Amati brothers. In the last episode, we left them in the midst of a busy and productive period in their lives. Girolamo, the youngest brother, is now a widower after his wife Lucrezia died shortly after the birth of their daughter Elizabeth. The brother's father, Antonio, has passed away and Cremona Being Cremona was insanely busy with its influx of merchants and soldiers passing through and never far from drama and disaster, as we will see. Because of continual war and armies marching through the town, the walls were in a sorry state, but life ploughed on as usual, and no matter how bad things got, 
people still wanted music and musicians still needed instruments. Towards the end of the 16th century, 1583, Cremona was described as a city filled with sumptuous buildings, both private and public. There were an abundance of temples and monasteries, wide and spacious streets. The walls of the city have almost completely fallen to the ground due to the numerous wars in the region, and the villages around the walls were ruined. One traveller to Cremona at the time was a little bit nonplussed by the place. This is an excerpt from a 16th century tourist writing what appears to be a type of lonely planet guide. His name is Maximilian Mission and his book is A New Voyage to Italy, together with useful instructions for those who shall travel hither. We followed the course of the Po at some distance till we came over against Cremona, where we crossed over the river in a ferryboat. There are no bridges on the Po below Turin. Cremona is seated on the left bank of the river in the Duchy of Milan. It is a pretty large city, but even poorer and less populous than Piacenza. There is nothing at all to be seen in it, though its tower and castle are very much extolled. One of their authors has the confidence to tell the world that the tower is reckoned to exceed all others in height, and for that reason esteemed one of the wonders of Europe, and that the castle is the strongest and the most, most formidable citadel in Italy. If I had not been accustomed to the lofty and hyperbolic expressions of the Italians, I should have been strangely surprised, after all these rodomitantes, to find nothing at Cremona worth observation. The castle is an old, shapeless and half-ruined mass, which in its very best state deserved not to be compared to a well-contrived fort, but perhaps might have been reputed tolerable in the days of crossbows. And the tower is neither handsome nor very high, but inferior to a thousand that are not so much as mentioned. It was built by Frederick Barbarossa in the year 1184, there is a tradition that the Emperor Sigismund and Pope John XXIII went up this tower with a certain Lord of Cremona who repented afterwards, as he several times declared that he did not throw him down from the top to bottom, merely for the rarity of the thing. And perhaps it was this story that gave the first occasion to the reflections that had been made on the height of the tower. The inhabitants of Cremona boast much of the antiquity of their city, but they produce not any monuments to confirm it. The antiquity of Cremona has a very near resemblance to that of the Po. In a distance of 14 miles from Cremona to Mantua, we saw nothing but hamlets that deserve not to be named. Only Botzolo is a sort of little city enclosed with certain works which pass for fortifications. It gives title to a duke, who besides this place is sovereign of a territory that extends four or five miles. We passed the Oglio in a ferry boat, and great and rapid. Apparently boring as it was, the city was doing okay, but the effects of war were beginning to show. The walls might have been in a bad state, but in town there was a movement amongst the monasteries and local congregations towards creating new foundations. 
These included orphanages. There were colleges for youth education, boarding schools. A conservatory opened in 1587 to welcome young girls in danger, that is, who did not have a dowry, and risked, therefore, to take a bad path. The Jesuits built a magnificent new church in 1602, the Church of St. Peter and Marcelino. For women, there were sisters who taught in the schools and boarding schools. They dedicated themselves to the education of young girls who belonged to the most distinguished and wealthy families of Cremona. These nuns were not pushed into seclusion. They are interesting in that they were free to go to the local church, leave the buildings when they wanted to, and embark on charitable works in the community, such as looking after the poor schools. This gave a particular atmosphere to the city, with many in the religious orders out and about. In the spring of 1584, Girolamo Amati married for a second time. His first wife, Lucrezia, had died shortly after the birth of their daughter, Elizabeth. And now Laura Medici Lazzarini, niece of a prominent nobleman and a distant cousin to the famous Bank Medicis, would be his new blushing bride. At the time of Girolamo and Laura's wedding, the city of Cremona was thriving. The factories in town were working at full speed, especially in the textile sector, where wool and moleskin employed a large part of the population. The city was growing as the factories were expanding and the nobles and rich merchants were building palaces and stately homes. The Amatis were now a well-respected family. Andrea had finally been able to buy their house a few years before his death and now his sons, the brothers, Antonio and Girolamo, had inherited both the house and a prosperous business. They made instruments for important people, nobles and royal families. Girolamo's marriage to a member of the lesser nobility shows an overlapping of the respected artisan class and the more wealthy noble class. Laura's dowry would have helped as well, but as with his first wife, Lucrezia, Girolamo had to share Laura's dowry with his brother, Antonio, as he was now head of the family. I spoke to Carlo Chiesa, researcher, author and violin maker in Milan. Why is he called Hieronymus sometimes? And it's a, it's the Latin name. Hieronymus is the Latin from Girolamo, so I use the Italian, but it's the same name. And on on his labels, it's uh... Hieronymus. He uses a Latin form, Hieronymus. Is it always Hieronymus? No. No. Sometimes it is Girolamo, uh, but the, the the reason is that if you use the Latin name, is Hieronymus. So for foreign not Italian-speaking people, I understand Jerome is a bit difficult to, to remember, and Hieronymus is much easier because it's also German and uh, the English form for Jerome. So I think that's the... It's just confusing. But it is late. So. No, come on. We are speaking of four generations, five makers, you know. With the, with the brothers, Amati, why do you think there was such a large age gap between, between the two brothers? Yeah, we don't know exactly. Apparently, Antonio, but we consider that is just a theory that um, Antonio was born much uh, many years before Girolamo, so Girolamo was much younger. Antonio was apparently an old man, middle-aged man when uh, Girolamo's, uh, Girolamo was uh, was a boy. So, uh, since this, uh, I suppose that at some point that uh, they were half brothers uh, because perhaps there was a second wife. Could they have had uh, Antonio 
and then had a bunch of girls and then Hieronymus? Because I feel like sometimes they just don't say if they're girls. There are three three sisters. Oh, in between? In the, yes. Oh. I mean, so it's possible. I mean, if you're like eight, 18 when you have the first kid and then 28, 30, 38, absolutely. 40, yeah, you can do yeah, It's possible. Oh, absolutely. Everything is possible. And uh, I really I also think it, uh, it was not so important at that time, probably, because the family was uh, a family in which... Uh, uh, if uh, the head of the family was a strong man, uh, it was not possibly so important if he had a, a second wife and uh, the sons were not uh, uh, sons but half-brothers. Uh. I spoke to Benjamin Hebert, expert and instrument dealer in Oxford. They overlap, like the fathers and sons, obviously, but... Uh, as you were saying with the Amati brothers, their lives were quite different to Andrea, I imagine, in that they were in Andrea, even though they were, my understanding is they were occupied by the Spanish, but it was quite peaceful and, and orderly life. And then they go into this period of like, like you're saying, like being basically trampled and then getting up and getting squashed and then getting up and getting trampled again, the city of Cremona. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's one of the things you go around, I mean, you obviously go around Florence and Pisa and places like that, and it's full of wonderful stuff. And uh, gosh, I found a mid-17th century account of Cremona by an English traveller, which is just uh, where he basically says this is the most boring town in, in the country. Uh, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing of note. And he he actually sort of gets a bit angry about it, and he he says, you know, they they boast that they've got the highest tower in the whole of Italy, but you know, even that's not true. And uh, the poor guy really is beside himself that he's gone all the way to Cremona and there's just nothing to see. You know, they're even sort of famous for having a bridge, but they don't have a bridge. And uh, but all of this was. You know, the, the relative poverty of the town and all of that kind of stuff, you know, is because uh, because it was changing hands so repeatedly and being not just changing hands, but because it was having, you know, it was being garrisoned by people who would then be leaving and other people would be garrisoned and so forth. Uh, it can't really develop economically. So, so the the investment in a better cathedral or whatever. I mean, the cathedral's great. And, uh, but it's, it's really kind of interesting to hear an Englishman in the 1650s really, really sort of giving a real one-star trip advisor. As for the roulette of childbirth at the time, Lara was luckier than her predecessor and seemed to have no trouble having babies. One was probably on the way by the next year when things started to get a bit worrying. The weather had been terrible, not only around Cremona, but in the whole region. News was trickling through that crops had been ruined yet again. One year of spoiled harvest was bad enough, but several years in a row spelled disaster. Prices for bread and basic food items were rising in the marketplace. There was simply less and less to sell or buy. It was now 11 years since Antonio had passed away, and the workshop had been busy. 
One of the characteristics of the Amati brothers' work was the variety and willingness to experiment. At this point, instrument sizes were not standardised and the workshop was exploring different possibilities, making varying sized violins, some very small, others larger. Cellos with four or five strings, violas of differing dimensions, sets of vials and other stringed instruments. But living and working with a sibling can take its toll. The budget was strained at home and tensions were rising between the brothers. Antonio was at least 13 years older than Girolamo and he had grown up working with their father much longer than his little brother. But differing characters, living in the same house and working together was getting too much. There were financial stresses and Girolamo had a family and children. He may have resented having to share both his wives' dowries with his older brother. Four years after marrying Laura, and with famine looming over the region, the brothers were no longer speaking to each other. Things would have to change. Yeah, I find it, I find it hard to... There's not that much about the Amati brothers um, to go on. <laughs> um, although, you know, they do have that fight... The famous fight. The famous fight. Um, they sort of know the the thing they're most well known for is fighting. Benjamin Hebert. Yeah, I mean Antonio is a lot. You know, his twenty-one. You know, we think he's born around fifteen forty. Girolamo, we think, is born in fifteen sixty-one. I mean, really, you know, they're well and truly old enough to be father and son. And. They're having sort of, yeah, put up with each other that way. Uh, and, you know, so if Antonio is probably about, you know, in his 20s by the time that Andrea, his father, is making these instruments for the French court, he must be complicit with him. And then this guy who's 20 years younger than him suddenly comes along. And, you know, by 1600, we see the same you know, we suddenly see the edge work that we see right the way through the Amati dynasty. We see, you know, even to Strad and so forth. And, you know, the the birth of, you know, the final birth of the Cremonese violin as we know it is something that happens. I I don't know when. I don't, I don't know what the earliest instrument I'm going to find with it, but it's closer to 1600 than it is to even 15. Even 1591, uh, there's a lovely viola in the Ashmolean Brothers Amati, and it's still, it's still a prototypical one as opposed to a typical kind of kind of Amati. And so, between Andrea and you know perhaps his son, maybe we should give him credit uh, as part of it. You've got something where they've figured out the mathematical structure of the instrument they've they've actually done revolutionary things which differentiate these from from other instruments they've actually seen them as a as a kind of architecture and and they've got a model which they're happy to 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 go on with for over 30 years and then the other son that's 20 odd years 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 junior seems to rise up and says no that's that's not good enough we're going to do it differently and uh, and and actually, it's Girolamo the set, Girolamo Marti. I think that 
the, the this little son who for whatever reason you could, I, I can see it as is that breath of fresh air that figures figures things out uh, or that little such and such who's just has no respect for tradition and and makes a, me- a pain of himself in the workshop. Yeah, so Girolamo's instruments are quite, uh, you, you see them as being quite different to the Andrea and um, Antonio. I think I think the simplest thing is if you lie a violin, you know, imagine lying at the back of a violin as flat and you take a marble and you, and you, and you let the marble roll off in any direction, then the marble is going to just carry on like a ski jump straight out into into everywhere and it does that because for the whole of the surface area of the back or the front everything is unrelentingly mathematical it's following a curtate cycloid which is a fancy piece of mathematics and there's nothing that's going to stop that Girolamo Amati basically puts the edges on the tray and but those are really interesting because they reinforce where the ribs meet uh meet the back and the front and they actually allow the whole thing to be a little bit more uh flexible just on just on the inside so if you take a girolamo amati and roll a marble down it i'm not suggesting you do that with a real amati uh then it won't fly straight off it'll either skip over or it'll sort of fall fall into that sort of trayishness of that nice round thing and that's one of the things that makes an awful lot of difference uh the instruments actually become far more unified at that point uh you know there's far more predictability in how they look there's just all sorts of refinements he obviously loves what's been done before uh and it's very interesting. So the brothers Amati, their labels actually say uh, Hieronymus and Antonius. They use the Latin. Their names are Antonio and Girolamo. Hieronymus, uh, and uh, it then says that they're brothers. And then it also says that their father is Andrea. And even despite all of these fights, Girolamo, you know, Antonio dies in 1607. Girolamo's got another 23 years to go before he dies. And he still labels his stuff, whether his, whether his brother's in the company or not, whether his company is dead. He, right up to 1630, he carries on labeling his instruments as the brothers Amati, who are the sons of Andrea. And because of the plague and everything that's going wrong and the uncertainty of the market, when Niccolo comes in, it's still the brothers of Marti. And even when Girolamo is dead and Niccolo's the only ones that's left, through the 1630s, there's instruments that he makes entirely. And he doesn't quite have the courage to put his own label on them. He just pretends that the brothers of Marti are still going. So there's something, uh, there's something very human and touching about that. There's also something about the importance of brand and how they wanted to be identified as this continuation. So when Girolamo and later Niccolo, his son, are making things which are different from what Andrea is, there's still every label that they write is communicating that they are part of that 
that tradition which goes all the way back. I think, musically speaking, Andrea Marti is looking for something which is loud and brash and harsh because of what, what he's been asked to do. Even by the 1590s, the Amatis are trying to make something which is softer and more, more of a mixing you know, instruments that mingle better. In 1588, Girolamo wanted out, and he demanded Antonio return his share of both Lucrezia's and Laura's dowries, probably knowing full well he was in no position to do such a thing. They would split the workshop between them and no longer live under the same roof. As Antonio could not afford to repay the dowries, he handed over his share of the family home and moved out. But not far, just down the road. That was probably a bit awkward. Anyway, they still had nothing to say to each other and winter was coming on, so lawyers drew up a document on the 20th of December stating that Girolamo had to divide up all the tools, instruments, moulds and other items in the workshop. And on the following Thursday, Antonio would come and choose which pile he would take. Antonio could use the workshop for another two months, but then he would have to leave and never set foot in the building again. Carlo Chiesa. And in fact, we see that uh, their brother, Samati, developed the outlines of the instruments uh, by Andrea. And then Nicolò again developed uh, the outline of the instruments by the brothers. And then when we arrive to Antonio Stradivari uh, at the end of the 17th century, that is uh, more than 100 years after the death of Andrea Amati, at that point, Antonio Stradivari goes back to make something that is much more similar to what Andrea made as a start. That's my idea, at least. Maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but if you compare the instruments, outline of instruments from Andrea Amati made in uh, the 1560s to the instruments made by Antonio Stradivari after 1705, that is after the, the period of the long pattern instruments, uh, then they uh, perfectly fit. Through notarial documents, we know that uh, the Amati ran an important workshop in which uh, uh, there were many people working, not just uh, Andrea Amati first and then his two sons later. But uh, uh, we know that uh, at some point, the two sons of uh, uh, Andrea, the so-called brother Amati, they split in 1588. And uh, Antonio went on working on his own while Girolamo went on working on his own. So also when we say uh, the production of the brother Samat, in truth, all of that comes from one or the other of the two brothers. And then Antonio died in 1607, meaning before many of the instruments made by the brother Samati were made. They did work together at some point, didn't they? The brothers. They worked together until 1588. It was a bad, bad breakup. A bad breakup, of course. And uh, uh, but but. Uh, a bad breakup, but Antonio stayed to live in the same street, which is a street uh, about 30 meters long. So it's uh, and he should, it's awkward. Yeah, it, I don't know. Divorce are always uh, uh, painful. So uh, and uh, then then what happened was that Girolamo, uh, Girolamo had a wife and uh, and son, uh, Nicolò. At that time, Nicolò was just four year old. 
But then uh, Jerome went on working hard and Nicolò uh, joined him at some point. And I'm sure that while Antonio workshop was uh, a small workshop, the important part of the Amati workshop was uh, the Girolamo workshop. And uh, at some point, uh, uh, Girolamo needed uh, also more people working with him. And since he had only one uh, male son, uh, but he had daughters, uh, he hired uh, the husbands of his daughters. Antonio set up his workshop and from now on was known more as a loot maker than anything else, but was still used from time to time the Amati Brothers label, as did Girolamo. The brand, Amati Brothers, was still lucrative, it seemed. And documents, uh, we have no documents uh, speaking of his uh, marriage and we just have his uh, death record uh, in which he's called Antonio Amati dei Liuti, not dei Violini meaning that maybe he was uh, going on making mainly plucked instruments and not uh, bowed instruments, because I'm sure they made uh, also all, all, all of these makers uh, down to the, the Guarneris, uh, at least. Uh, we have uh, documents in which, uh, by which we know that they made also plucked instruments. All of them are lost. But, uh, of course, they had workshops in which they did not make just violins. So maybe, maybe, Antonio specialized in lucky instruments and Girolamo in Bowie instruments. But that's a theory. And as for the other part, if I have no family records, but I, we have no, no records for uh, uh, daughters or sons for Antonio. So maybe he never married. Okay. Was, would, would that have been unusual? Not particularly. It happened. So. Okay. Don't ask me if there's a... Yes, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> also, the, the, well, uh, with the Stradivari, that's much better. Think of Stradivari. Uh, he had many, many sons. He had many sons. He had at least four or six, uh, six children. And uh, just one of them got married when he was uh, a boy of 30. But, um, uh, Francesco did not marry. Omobono did not marry. Giovanni Battista did not marry. And uh, the two other, Alessandro and Giuseppe, both of them went to be priests. So that's an interesting. In town, there was a group Girolamo would have definitely known about called the Accademia degli Animosi. In Cremona, there were not many places to perform music outside the church. And as there was no noble court, what they had was the Animosi. It was a group of people who met in a nobleman's palace, the Marquis Camillo Stanga. One of their purposes was to meet once a week and give a talk on moral or natural philosophy. All the important stuff. Before or after which there would be a musical concert. They had a violinist, a lutist and four singers they employed for the gathering held on a Thursday. Monteverdi writes in a letter about the gatherings as he has some of his compositions performed there. In a recount of one gathering, there was a rich reading of poems by some academics, followed by music with selected voices, turbos, violins and bass files, who entertained the whole audience very joyfully. Vast amounts of music were composed for the Academia degli Animosa over the years, but none has survived. 
we do have descriptions of some events, such as the election of a cardinal, where the party was described as being lively with lighting of fires, music for two choirs, drums, dances, and choreography of various kinds. Back in the Amati house, Girolamo and Laura's family was growing, which was nice, but actually not so great, it turns out, because it looked like the food shortages and famine were only getting worse as they had more and more mouths to feed. It was harder to buy basic provisions for the family. Prices for food were going up and up as supply was diminishing. The markets were emptying out of sellers simply because they had almost nothing to sell and what they did have was costly. During this time, Girolamo made a violin that today is played in the Australian Chamber Orchestra here in Sydney. I speak to Ilya Izakovic about what it's like to play on this Amati Brothers violin. Uh, my name is Ilya Izakovic and I played the violin in the Australian Chamber Orchestra for nearly 19 years now. At the moment, I'm extremely lucky to be the custodian of um, this amazing uh, Brothers Amati violin. It's kind of um, a dream come true. I think for every, every musician, especially violinist, you sort of grow up and hear the legends about Stradivari, Guarneri, Amati. Those three names mostly come up as the greatest violin makers of all time from Cremona. <laughs> So I, I never actually um, imagined that I will be playing one of those three makers' violin. I, I was born in Ukraine, and of course uh, those instruments are incredibly expensive and difficult to obtain, but I, I always dreamed about it, and I, I was kind of imagining what it could be like playing one of those. Yeah, so it's very emotional. And here you are. Yes, here I am, yes. <laughs> well, there is, uh, in my mind, there is such a thing as um, the Italian color of sound. Um, it's kind of a, like a pedigree, um, a noble, uh, noble timber to the sound, which you hear the violin, you know, and you say, oh, this is Italian. Usually I would associate it with kind of very uh, deep, deep sound and at the same time very projecting. So usually you play those instruments and even not so much under your ear, but if you are in a larger space, they project incredibly well into the hole. But this instrument, um, the Amati, you kind of play and people say, wow, it just, it just speaks. I think there was some kind of secret those makers possessed that allowed them to make instruments that, that work incredibly well in large spaces. I'm not even sure what it is. Maybe something with the geometry or something with the timber. Yeah. And how does it, um, how does it blend with the other instruments in the orchestra? Oh, we, it blends incredibly well. Um, the, the interesting thing um, about the ACO is, um, as lots of people are saying, we are essentially an orchestra of soloists. So 
it does not only have to blend with the others, but everyone has got his own personal voice, which really matters in, in the complex sound that we produce. There are only 17 of us, so every everyone matters a lot. And we're extremely lucky. I don't know of any other orchestra in the world at the moment that got access to such an incredible array of instruments that we do. So we got a Guarneri del Gesù and at the moment three Stradivariuses, two Amatis, Mayan Tipis, and also Joseph Guarneri, two instruments, and Guadagnini. <laughs> so the the mm. best of the best. The Salo. <laughs> the Salo, exactly. You have Viom. Uh, Viom. You can Michael. tell. You can tell the whole history of yes. the violin in yes. this one orchestra. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, it's quite incredible because it also makes uh, such a substantial difference to to the sound that the orchestra produces that it makes us sound even more special. Yeah, you have incredible players and incredible instruments. Yes. You now yes. have an incredible building. What, what else? We're yes. looking <laughs> we're looking at the harbour bridge, out the window, the water. Um, exactly. Yeah. Do you, I know your other instrument is 17th century as well. Yep. But uh, does it uh, change anything playing on a, do you think, playing on an instrument that has a history as rich as... An Amati violin, for example. Of course, it does. Yes, this. Uh, I think this violin is actually 16th century because it was made in 1590. Yes. So it's um, it's the second oldest instrument in the orchestra after Max's Gaspar de Salo, mm -hmm. um, and it's quite incredible to know that um, some actually pretty famous people have played on it. I know there was an uh, amateur violinist called Lady Cecil. Mm -hmm. There's a Strad called the Cecil. Yes. Strad. Is that her uh, as well, um, do you think? It might, it might be. I'm not 100% sure. Um, there was also some uh, a Dutch writer. I think his name was Van Roon, uh, who also owned this instrument. So yes, you you kind of you play it and you feel incredibly lucky to be kind of connected to all those people as well mm. that lay their hands on this. It doesn't take much effort at all to make it speak the instrument, you know. And um, I'm hoping, um, as I said, <laughs> I'll play it for as long as as possible. Yeah, so in 1590, what's interesting is that there was uh, a famine in uh, Lombardy. Yes. Uh, in Cremona. And it was actually the worst famine that Italy ever had. It was very severe. Uh, and there was just torrential rain and it wiped out the crops. And uh, the farmers couldn't, uh, uh, like several years in a row. So they just couldn't bounce back. And so it's interesting to think that his wife, um, uh, Nicola, is not born yet, but yes. uh, like they've got other children and there's this, it must have been quite a stressful situation. Mm. There's no food and 
and he's still making, you know, beautiful instruments. Yeah, it's hard to imagine actually what it was like living in those times with having the not having the basic things that we're used to so much now, like food and warmth, electricity, and you know, um, and still creating basically art. Yeah. Um, you think of um, um, it's it's kind of the same period as all the Italian Renaissance painters, you know. It's for me. It's a piece of art. It's not just an instrument to play. And you think how much work goes to create such thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not only art, I suppose, but it's all mathematical. It's thought out. It's geometry. It's proportions. Yes. It's and and an artwork at the same time. It's a whole. And they were also at that time kind of the violin as an instrument wasn't really very much kind of set in stone in terms of what it is, you know, and how it should look. <laughs> so the dimensions, for example, and all the proportions uh, kept changing all the time. And Andrea Amati, who was uh, the father, is considered by many to be the kind of the father of the violin as we know it. It's actually pretty different instrument to what Stradivari later produced and Guarneri changed it a lot as well. So it was all kind of experimental mm. at the time. And yet it works. <laughs> and it works amazingly well. Yes, I think the, for example, this particular violin, the dimensions of it are quite small compared to, as I said, the, the more modern and larger models of Stradivari and Guarneri, and then all the makers who tried to copy them. <laughs> yeah. It's even more incredible that it produces this kind of sound of that magnitude that it does with, with a smaller body. Yeah. Can we see it? Can I see it? Yes, absolutely. So I, rem I remember you brought it into the workshop um, yes. a few months ago. Yes, didn't you? yes. I, I had Antoine um, replace the bridge. Yeah. Yes. How is it? It's beautiful, okay. yes. And no issues since then. Yeah. It's very uh, delicate looking, isn't Yes, it? exactly. It's, it's, it's almost like um, ladylike. Yeah. And <laughs> the scroll is very like, fine and, yeah, very um, like, quite pronounced archings but it's still got that um that's the typical amati scoop yeah and uh, it's kind of very high arching yeah it, it, it'll do the scoop and the the, yes. the bulge and what's the is there a, like a pin in the back here that was yeah yeah it looks like because uh, you know they used to hang the violins in the shop ah yes and they would the, just drill a hole yes yeah, <laughs> yes they would just drill a hole and the... <laughs> right. Do you know when that was, when they, like, at what period they did that? I don't know. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we know, we just drill a hole. Yeah, drill a hole, That's... why not? Uh, and <laughs> it's also quite remarkable that um, you look at it and you think it was made in 1590 and it's in such amazing shape. Yeah. I mean, it's... And the varnish is varnish is good. Most of the varnish, original varnish is still there. And no 
no damage, no cracks, no. So. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. It hasn't like you'd ex you yeah you expect if you yeah. So it's obviously uh, been well looked after. Every owner yes, has exactly. Every owner had the respect. <laughs> yeah. For the maker. Yeah, which kind of um, leads to the sort of a continuity of um, the idea that Amati was a good maker. Um, don't yes. like don't Incredible. don't mess with it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And here we leave the Amati brothers, each one going his own way. Their own way, but still staying in the same street nevertheless. And it is understandable from this point on, the majority of instruments in the violin family are by and large attributed to Girolamo, the younger brother. Antonio, as Carlo Chiesa mentioned, appears to have veered towards the plucked stringed instruments as a future record of him as a lute maker appears. Their standing as luxury instrument makers does not appear to have been affected as they continue to undertake orders creating beautiful instruments for wealthy patrons. But life has a way of being unpredictable and surprising, as the two brothers will soon find out as the next century approaches. So at this stage, we are at the second generation of the Amatis, and Girolamo is about to have a son, Niccolo, who will do something quite extraordinarily different to his father and grandfather, and change the history of violin making forever. So do stay with me for the next instalment of The Violin Chronicles. But for now, I'd like to thank my lovely guests on this episode, Ilya Izakovic, Benjamin Hebert, and Carlo Chiesa. If you would like to support the podcast, please head over to patreon.com forward slash The Violin Chronicles and do that. It would be wonderful to have your support and you will also have access to bonus episodes and the All You Need to Know podcast where we go through each maker and quickly detail their life and do a rundown of the characteristics in their instruments and how to recognize an instrument from each maker. Do subscribe to the podcast or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to follow on Instagram, the handle is at The Violin Chronicles. And what you're hearing right now is Timo Vecchiovevi play on a 1616 Amati Brothers cello. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>